Welcome to Chilling with Teddy G, an authentic black channel empowering the black community and capturing the modern day black reality through investigative journalism. I'm your host, Teddy G. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and I thank y'all for joining me for another episode of Chilling with Teddy G. As you know, here we discuss anything and everything with absolutely no sugar, no frosting, and definitely no mayonnaise. So y'all go grab yourself your favorite cup of coffee, tea, or latte, whichever you prefer. And uh, let's talk about day eight and day nine in the uh, murder trial of uh, Derek Chauvin who uh, subsequently is a race soldier, in my opinion, and he murdered George Floyd. You know, I tell it like it is, or at least I tell you how I feel, and that's how I feel. So we got a state-sanctioned uh, uh, um, former Minneapolis police officer who has uh, killed George Floyd in this uh, modern-day lynching. And we're on... Uh, going to discuss a uh, trial uh, of day eight and day nine of this trial. Now, we're going to get right into this uh, once I do my dirty laundry, because you know it's a must that we keep it clean around here at the studios of Chilling with Teddy G. So if y'all haven't grabbed your coffee, tea, or latte, you might want to go do that while I sit here and do this uh, dirty laundry with the Copyright Act of 1976 under Title 17, Section 107. Allowances is uh, made uh, for the fair use for the purpose such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarships, and research. Fair use is permitted by the copyright statute that may otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit education or personal use tips the balance in the favor of fair use. So, ladies and gentlemen, the, the uh, prosecution uh, um, uh, is, side is uh, winding down. I think they may have a day or two left into uh, the following week that's coming. But uh, uh, their defense is uh, coming uh, close to an end. And day eight and day nine were very um, powerful um, uh, testimonies that we have heard from um, witnesses and um, from um, experts, as well as uh, medical experts and law enforcement um, experts. So, uh, again, you know what? Before I even go into that, I'm I want to point out something, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, it hasn't been talked about during this trial, but it's just some significant. Uh, um, points of view and opinions from me that I believe are crucial to the uh, prosecution's case against uh, uh, Derek Chauvin. Now, this is not going to say that this is going to come out because this is just a theory of mine, but I just noticed that they haven't been talking about the other officers, you know, on great lengths uh, involvement in this because and the only reason why I'm finding some significance in this, because if you've got um, three officers on top of you, uh, I believe 
that the uh, contribution between the pressures that the other two officers was putting on the, his body was just as important as uh, uh, Derek Chauvin and, uh, and the pressure that he was putting on his neck. And, you, and you've got these handcuffs on you now. Let's talk about that just for a second. We know that, uh, uh, and I know from experience, that when those are, uh, when they put them handcuffs on you, if you're melanated or you're a native black American, they squeeze them handcuffs on your wrist to where uh, uh, you have almost, well, not almost, but uh, uh, the circulation would stop going to your hands. And I even told them, I said, hey, y'all cutting off my circulation. And, the, and they said, good. And then when I ask them again, I say, hey, my, my hands and, and my fingers uh, are going numb. And they say, well, you should have thought about that before you committed the crime. And I've been like, wait a minute, y'all. I ain't committed no crime. And I definitely ain't been found guilty of one when y'all trying to treat me the way that you're treating me. But nevertheless, they did not ease up on them uh, cuffs. And by the time uh, uh, I was uh, either released uh, by them or by uh, uh, the jailer, uh, there was uh, subsequent bleeding. I mean, not a lot. It wasn't profusely. But you could see the bruises and you could see the bleeding that came from where they had the handcuffs around my wrist. Now, keeping that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, I'm 100% sure that that what was going on with uh, George Floyd. Now, you accompany that with the fact that you've got uh, 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 his uh, blood flow being uh, suppressed by the guys that's laying on his legs, right? By the guy who's laying on his uh, thighs, you know, and they're putting this uh, pressure down there. And they're, they're full body weight, okay? This is the reason why you probably heard him tell me, I'm hurting all over. You heard him say this more than once. I'm hurting all over. And that was because he was receiving pain and he was receiving uh, the restriction of blood flow from all three officers that was on his body. Now, that's just my personal opinion, but I really believe that it holds a lot of weight uh, uh, in this case, and it also helped precipitate uh, the death or the modern-day lynching of George Floyd. Now, with that being said, I just want need y'all to keep that in mind along with what you're going to hear from these uh, uh, expert witnesses from the uh, uh, medical field as well as uh, law enforcement. And when you put that all together, you're going to come to the conclusion that I know y'all already at, that all three of them were subsequently responsible for the death of uh, George Floyd, plain and simple. Okay, so now uh, uh, it wasn't just a former Minneapolis a police officer, Derek Chauvin's knee on the uh, neck of George Floyd, uh, that contributed to the alleged excessive force applied in the uh, fatal 2020 modern-day lynching of the uh, 20 of uh, a 46-year-old uh, black man, George Floyd. A, a prosecution expert witnesses testified on Wednesday. Uh, he says that the uh, that this Los Angeles uh, Police Department sergeant, uh, a veteran of the force and trainer. Uh, who testified as a, a paid expert witness for the uh, prosecutor says his review of the video evidence of Floyd's uh, murder 
uh, indicated that the Chavez was also using a pain uh, compliance technique on Floyd's uh, handcuffed hands. So let's get a recap of exactly everything that happened uh, on, on day eight. Death of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin on trial. I'm Terry Moran. Day eight of the trial of Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd has concluded. And it was a day when jurors' eyes glazed over, to be honest, at times. Since there was a lot of prosecution testimony about the nitty-gritty of this investigation, who collected the evidence, when and how they did it, why jurors can have confidence in it. But there were also a couple of key moments that got to the issue at the heart of this case. Did former police officer Derek Chauvin use excessive force, unreasonable force, when he pushed his knee down on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes? Our Kenneth Moten, who's covered this trial since it began, is on the scene outside the courthouse in Minneapolis. And jurors, Kenneth, did have to sit through a lot of that uh, very technical evidence about how the evidence was, ga how the evidence was gathered and, and what the drug evidence uh, uh, reveals. But they did hear some evidence today uh, about the act itself that is at the heart of this, the knee on the neck, for nine minutes and 29 seconds. They heard some extremely technical testimony today, and then it will be up to this jury to piece it all together after all of those witnesses take the stand for the state and for the defense. But for the state, it was all about those witnesses who were crime scene investigators, agents with the Bureau of Criminal uh, Apprehension, that state investigative unit here in the state of Minnesota that was called right to that scene at 38th in Chicago on May 25th after George Floyd was, uh, after George Floyd died. And we know that when it comes to those agents, they got work right to work. Uh, but we know that some of the work was missed as well. And that's because as one witness testified on the stand today, um, that she didn't have all the information. And so uh, there were motions before this trial started that said that uh, crime scene investigators actually missed drug evidence inside the SUV inside George Floyd's SUV and inside the patrol vehicle. But we found out that it was actually crime scene investigators who said they didn't have all of the information. And then the state requested them to go back and search. And that's questionable to me right there, ladies and gentlemen. I'm seeing on both parts, not only on the defense, but on the prosecutor as well, ladies and gentlemen. How you're in a, uh, a, 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 a capital, uh, or let's say a, a, a public murder case a high-profile murder case. You should be uh, uh, dotting all your I's. You should be crossing all your T's. And now for them to, to say at this stage in the trial that they had to go back over evidence of the uh, police cruiser as well as uh, a George Floyd's uh, personal vehicle, and then when y'all did, you find evidence? Now, I'm finding something fishy in that. I'm just keeping it real. Y'all can't sit down here and tell me that you're in the middle of a high-profile murder case and y'all ain't even got all the evidence drawn in, but yet y'all in the middle of the trial. And then all of a sudden, this so-called uh, um, going back and re-examining uh, um, some evidence, and then you find more evidence? That's leading me to some suspicious stuff right there. I don't care what nobody say. I'm telling you. 
later in the year, and then the defense asked them to go back and search the other vehicle. And during both those searches, they found drugs. They also found a lot of DNA evidence uh, from George Floyd in there, a lot of blood. And so that we know that there was uh, confirms what the video shows, which it was a violent scene in the back of that patrol vehicle after they tried to get him in there. There was some resistance, and then he was pulled out. And we know what we've seen on that video, that officers, including Derek Chauvin, are right there with that knee on the neck of George Floyd. So again, yes, Terry, it got pretty technical, but it was very important testimony about the chain of custody, about the investigative work that was done um, in the uh, minutes, hours after that deadly encounter, and also the months leading up to this trial. I'm sorry. I don't care what nobody say. That's highly suspicious. Well, we already know from the beginning of uh, 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 of the death of uh, the or the assassination or the uh, uh, modern day lynching of George Floyd, when uh, Derek Chauvin initially uh, contacted uh, his supervisor, that he tried to play down this uh, 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 the the way they handled uh, George Floyd and subsequently uh, uh, murdered him doing this uh, so-called attempted arrest but for but for it to be uh this far along not only in the trial but in the investigation you mean to tell me that <coughs> excuse me that y'all <clears throat> y'all didn't uh, gather wasn't able to gather this information or this evidence um before trial and then it, it says that the uh, defense is the one who requested for y'all to go back and look at this evidence. Now, I find that suspicious right there. And then for them to say that they don't found blood in there as well as drugs. Now, you can't tell me this ain't a monkey wrench thrown into the, uh, uh, to the mix. You can't tell me this ain't adding some, uh, some, uh, uh, grape Kool-Aid to a, a picture of, uh, a peach Kool-Aid. Nah, uh, we making a uh, peach Kool-Aid here, dog. Yeah, we'll throw some of this grape in there. Let's mix it up. That's a def that's definitely, in my opinion, what's happening in this uh in this trial. Y'all throwing some grape Kool-Aid up in here with this peach. And early in the day, Kenneth, we did hear from that prosecution expert witness, Jody Steiger, sergeant with the LAPD uh, for 28 years, brought to Minneapolis a very rare. A rare uh, a thing in, in these kinds of cases where police officers are on trial for the use of force that another police officer would come from another jurisdiction as an expert witness. And he did talk uh, about what he believes Derek Chauvin did. He called it the use of excessive force and, and also talked about exactly why. He stepped the jurors through his analysis. Talk a little bit about this witness. This LAPD officer, Seiger, really came with the qualifications there. He listed them all, and as you just mentioned, decades of experience here in talking about use of force as well. And he is that third-party observer, and he had some strong testimony for the state, and the defense tried to challenge that as well. We know that when it came to Seiger, it was another visual testimony um, from this outside expert, and the defense really tried to raise doubt about uh, this witness by saying that, look, 
he is not a Minneapolis police officer. He wasn't trained by Minneapolis police. Uh, he didn't have all of the evidence, all of the information for his analysis as well. But he went through it pretty methodically with the state. But Eric Nelson with the defense, he tried to establish that Chauvin, like any other reasonable police officer, his phrase there, reasonable police officer, arrived on that scene with a heightened sense of awareness about the six-foot-plus-tall suspect, possibly high on drugs. Nelson arguing that Chauvin actually didn't use as much force to control Floyd uh, as he was allowed under MPD policy. He didn't use a gun or he didn't use a taser, but Nelson used Seiger there to once again try to go through that video uh, and show Chauvin on top of Floyd. Where was his knee position? Where was it on his back? Was it between his shoulder blades? And so we talked a lot about uh, early on in the day about the positioning of Chauvin's right knee there. And so they use Steiger for that as well. But Steiger, during that prosecution line of questioning, saying outright that that use of force was totally unnecessary. But take a listen to uh, how he introduced this Graham versus Connor factors, this 1989 Supreme Court, this, this uh, really standard that police departments across this country use when it comes to use of force and how much force can be used, how can it be excessive, uh, listen to this testimony about him talking about the factors here used in this Chauvin Floyd case. You've already spoken uh, as to the first factor, the severity of the crime at issue. Did that change during the restraint period? No. The crime was still that uh, Mr. Floyd was in possession of a fake $20 bill. So I'd like you to focus then on the second factor, that is whether Mr. Floyd uh, posed an immediate threat to the safety of the officers or others at the time during the restraint period? No, he did not. And why not? Because he was in the prone position, he was handcuffed, um, he was not attempting to resist, he was not attempting to uh, assault the officers, kick, punch, or anything of that nature. Did he ever uh, communicate an intent to do so? No, he did not. I didn't hear any verbalization of any threats towards the officers. Did he ever uh, indicate whether or not he had the ability to do so? No, he did not. Again, the defense there arguing that when it comes to those three gram factors that officers need to consider, um, that the use of force is about a totality of the circumstances. And that's how the defense there tried to challenge Steiger. Testimonies you say for the prosecution on a day when jurors were looking for something to, to grasp onto because so much of it was about the evidence and how it came into the custody and why jurors can rely on it. Kenneth Moten, as always, every day out in front of the courthouse in Minneapolis. Thanks very much. We'll be right back. So that's some of uh, day eight that was going on in the trial. And uh, I want you all to listen to this a little bit, uh, this snippet from uh, uh, day nine of the uh, trial with some uh, very powerful uh, testimony that was uh, coming from some uh, medical uh, experts. The, the law enforcement subdual restraint and the neck compression was just more than Mr. Floyd could take by virtue of that, those heart conditions. So if we look at the other contributing conditions, those other contributing conditions are not conditions that you consider direct causes. Is that true? They are not direct causes of Mr. Floyd's death. That's true. They're contributing causes. And in terms of manner of death, you found then 
And do you stand by today that the manner of death for Mr. Floyd was, as you would call it, homicide? Yes, I would still classify it as a homicide today. That was the medical examiner who performed George Floyd's autopsy after former police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on this man's neck for over nine minutes. He was among the medical experts who undercut this week the defense's claim that Floyd died of a combination of heart disease, drugs, and high blood pressure. We'll hear more of what the defense has to say soon with the prosecution expected to rest its case early next week. And joining me now to discuss all the explosive testimony we heard is Cheryl Dorsey. She's a retired LAPD sergeant and the author of Black and Blue, and my friend Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation. So happy to have you both with me. Um, Ellie, you're the legal expert here, so I wanna start with you. Look, before we get into the legal issues, I just wanna focus on the humanity. Take a listen to the police chief uh, describing uh, what happened to Mr. Floyd. Once there was no longer any resistance, and clearly when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless, to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. Ellie, before you respond, now I want you to listen to the pulmonologist describing when there was no life left in Mr. Floyd. Listen at this. I'm not hearing it. I remember it. It's it's coming. I think the control room is uh, pulling it now. The virus uh, is spreading because we have too many people who've seen the end in sight. That's not think the right we're at the finish line already. But let me be yeah, deadly that's obviously earnest. the wrong soundbite. But the you remember you recall the point where the pulmonologist is saying there is no life left at this point. We see there is no life left in Mr. Floyd. I think the bigger question here is his family had to sit through that testimony. His daughter will likely hear that testimony at one point, and it just punctuates the point that black lives matter. Not matter more, not matter less, they just simply matter. So what's your take just from the humanity of listening to this kind of testimony every day, all day for the past couple of weeks? It's been very hard, to be honest. It's really triggering while you're trying to kind of go about your normal life, and you're constantly being reminded um, that these cops just took this man's life with impunity. Um, the analogy that I've tried to make when, when we look at what the defense is doing in response to this compelling testimony, imagine if after 9-11, the defense lawyers for the terrorists had said, well, you know, if they hadn't gone to work that morning, they'd be a lie. You know, imagine if uh, Jokar Zarnayev, the Boston Marathon bomber, his lawyers had said, had made the Mr. Blonde defense. Well, if they hadn't done what I told them not to do, they'd be alive. Of course, we don't let terrorists blame the victims for the terrorism. That's not what happens in this country unless the victim is black. And exactly. when the victim is black, these white domestic state-sponsored terrorists, yes. which is what Derek Chauvin and his three accomplices were that day, the state-sponsored terrorists, when the terrorism is against black people, 
it is suddenly okay for lawyers to make the arguments and judges to allow evidence suggesting that the victim of the terrorism was at fault for their own death. And it's just... Oh, we got to hear that again. Now, that's somebody who's speaking the truth and saying it better than I could say it. Now, I know every uh, melanated individual, every native black uh, uh, American, and uh, all uh, um, blacks across the world can understand what he just said. Now, he told y'all exactly how it is with no flavoring whatsoever, which we love around here at the studios of Chilling with Teddy G. Let's listen to that portion again. Of course, we don't let terrorists blame the victims for the terrorism. That's not what happens in this country unless the victim is black. And when the victim is black, these white domestic state-sponsored terrorists, which is what Derek Chauvin and his three accomplices were that day, the state-sponsored terrorists, yes. when the terrorism is against black people, it is suddenly okay for lawyers to make the arguments and judges to allow evidence suggesting that the victim of the terrorism was at fault for their own death. And it's just, it's crazy making and it's wrong. And judges to allow evidence suggesting that the victim of the terrorism was at fault for their own death. And it's just, it's crazy making and it's wrong. It's wrong and crazy. And Cheryl, I want to ask you, uh, I want you to take a listen. We have that soundbite now from the pulmonologist. Describe the moment where Mr. Floyd had no life left. At the beginning, you can see he's conscious. You can see slight flickering and then it disappears. And uh, so one, one second he's alive and one second he's no longer. That's the moment the life goes out of his body. So Cheryl, people keep saying we see cracks in the blue wall and all the police officers are testifying against him. And, you know, forgive me for being a skeptic, but I am not ready to fall for the okie doke here. I'm not ready to see, oh, you'll give us this one blood sacrifice. So the next time we won't scream bloody murder when there are some in law enforcement who get off on using black people as target practice. As someone who was a law enforcement officer, what's your take on this alleged storyline of the blue wall cracking? Well, listen, before she say that, this is one of the best uh, um, lamestream media uh, interviews that I have uh, seen since this trial is going on. Now, we've got three, and naturally, they all would be uh, um, um, Native Black Americans or people with uh, melanin in their skin. You know, these are definitely uh, not just uh, um, uh, skin folk. But these is people who is supporting the uh, uh, the uh, uh, aspects of uh, of uh, the murder of um, George Floyd, and I, I have to say that again. I, I, need, I you know what y'all need to hear that part again before Sergeant Dorsey comes in and give you some very enlightening uh, uh, opinions about what's going on here. 
So, Cheryl, people keep saying we see cracks in the blue wall and all the police officers are testifying against him. And, you know, forgive me for being a skeptic, but I am not ready to fall for the okie doke here. I'm not ready to see, oh, you'll give us this one blood sacrifice. So the next time we won't scream bloody murder when there are some in law enforcement who get off on using black people as target practice. As someone who was a law enforcement officer, what's your take on this alleged storyline of the blue wall cracking? Well, listen, uh, I've said all along that the police chief and those under him get no brownie points from me. They had to tell the truth. They had to admit to everything that we saw that they saw. And listen, the reason why they get no brownie points is because the police chief knows exactly who Derek Chauvin is. They grew up on that department together. That supervisor on scene testified, I know Chauvin, I've worked for him since 2008. And so if you know this guy is a loose cannon, if you know he is a city liability, why would you keep him in uniform? Exactly. Why would you allow him to go out, live to offend again? But for Mr. Floyd having died, Derek Chauvin would have received a 19th personnel complaint. And so they get no brownie points from me for doing that thing that they had to do, damage control. They've already paid the family $27 million. And you heard the chief say the first call he made when he saw the real video was to the mayor. And he probably said, sir, you better open up your checkbook because Chauvin is at it again. Exactly. You, I love this interview right here. We've got three intelligent individuals who are not watering it down, who are not flavoring it up, who are not putting no dog on uh, a mayonnaise on this story. They're telling you exactly how it is. You got to love it. Well, listen, uh, I've said all along that the police chief and those under him get no brownie points from me. They had to tell the truth. They had to admit to everything that we saw that they saw. And listen. The reason why they get no brownie points is because the police chief knows exactly who Derek Chauvin is. They grew up on that department together. That supervisor on scene testified, I know Chauvin, I've worked for him since 2008. And so if you know this guy is a loose cannon, if you know he is a city liability, why would you keep him in uniform? Why would you allow him to go out, live to offend again? But for Mr. Floyd having died, Derek Chauvin would have received a 19th personnel complaint. And so they get no brownie points from me for doing that thing that they had to do, damage control. They've already paid the family $27 million. And you heard the chief say the first call he made when he saw the real video was to the mayor. And he probably said, sir, you better open up your checkbook because Chauvin is at it again. Now, with all that being said, uh, y'all got to see exactly what she's talking about because she's a retired uh, um, L.A. police sergeant. And she's telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that there are no cracks in that uh, blue wall. They're doing what they have to do, which is damage control. So they 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 knew they had to uh, compensate uh, the Floyd family for what happened. They know that they don't want to, but they have to... Um, uh, leave uh, um, Derek Chauvin out to dry because of this uh, video footage. They ain't, they ain't have no choice. It ain't like they wanting to do this. That's why I am so glad that she was able to uh, give her uh, professional uh, um, uh, opinion about uh, this blue wall. This blue wall is still up and it's still strong. And all of these three individuals know that just because y'all is giving this this token, giving us this token bone. 
of throwing um, Derek Chauvin under the bus or, uh, or hanging him out to dry. Not because they want to do it, because they know they don't have no choice. And they figuring, just like uh, uh, um, this commentator said, y'all ain't going to miss me with the okey-doke by giving us this token bone. Because we know at, at, as this trial is going on, this same type of nefarious behavior is going on right now. At this very second, at this very moment. So y'all think because we're paying attention to this uh, high pro, uh, high profile murder case and that they're throwing uh, 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 Derek Chauvin under the bus that this is going to be the end of police brutality because any critical or logical in, uh, thinking individual know that that's not the case. So, you know, and, and, and I want to say this too. The people of uh, Minneapolis, ladies and gentlemen, they're still suffering behind this uh, latest... Um, uh, uh, modern day lynching and uh, they have erected a, a monument and they have unofficially named uh, uh, the uh, where uh, George Floyd was killed uh, after him uh, and then I want y'all to hear a little bit about that and then I want you to hear what they're trying to do when it comes to uh, what uh, um, this uh, uh, snippet audio that, uh, the, uh, that they were playing trying to say that um, George Floyd was uh, talking about his drug use, saying that uh, he was too high, high or he had too much drugs or something was going on. Yeah, I'm going to let y'all hear it and y'all tell me what he was saying because the uh, pr uh, prosecution is saying he said one thing and then the defense is saying that uh, uh, he said another. Uh, which to me, I don't believe that no matter what he said has uh, any bearing on the fact that he's dead, in my personal opinion. But this city and these people are still suffering behind uh, what happened. Let's listen in to this uh, 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 sad and heartbreaking thing that the uh, uh, the community is going through in trying to uh, recognize George uh, Floyd. Uh, our coverage of the trial of Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd, the city of Minneapolis, the country, the world awaiting uh, this trial and its verdict. And there you see the corner of Chicago Avenue and 38th Street now renamed by the people of that neighborhood and, and that city, not formally, but informally, George Floyd Square. And you see it, how it has become a monument to George Floyd and to the cause that his death lit up across this country and across the world. That is the Pan-African flag flying above uh, this makeshift monument that, that has been erected by the people there. Uh, that is a, a flag that uh, has been used in the past as, a, as an affirmation of the African roots of so many Americans and so many people in the African diaspora around the world. Uh, this trial really a part of a much larger story, of course, but it remains a trial. And so beyond a reasonable doubt, prosecutors are trying to prove that Derek Chauvin, through his unlawful use of force, uh, it led to the death of George Floyd, that knee on the neck. And I want to bring in our trial lawyer, Robert DiCello. And Robert, I do want to play something for you first and get your uh, analysis of what happened here. So one of the things that uh, Derek Chauvin's defense lawyer, Eric Nelson, has tried to do is play a snippet of one of the body cam videos uh, on which 
George Floyd can be heard to say something. It's hard to make it out. Eric Nelson suggested to one of the witnesses that what Floyd was saying was, I ate too many drugs. And then the prosecutors came back. They played it for a witness. And they said, Floyd saying something very different indeed. Let's take a listen first to those two sections uh, of testimony today. And did you attempt to understand and hear what various parties were saying at various times? Yes. Do you, did you ever hear Mr. Floyd say, I eat too many drugs? No. Like too- now, he said no. And I'm in agreement with that. I'm going to tell you why I'm in agreement with that. I'm, I'm in agreement with that because uh, I'm a, a black man. As you all know, okay, and that's simply just not the way we don't we talk. I ate too many drugs. In fact, that ain't in no common language where I see anybody would say something like that. I ate too many drugs. Now you know if, if we was to say something like that or something in that reference, like I ate too much, that makes sense. Uh, I drank too much, that makes sense. You know, before you to sit down here and and try to make the allegation that George Floyd, while in duress, you know, with this weight on his uh, 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 neck and chest and back and thigh and legs, is going to come out out of nowhere and say, I ate too many drugs. You know, I know that don't even sound right, but I'm going to get back to this and let y'all hear that. But I want you to hear that that is what the uh, prosecutor, I'm not uh, the district, excuse me, let me get this correct. The defense attorney is trying to say that that is what um, George Floyd was saying. Y'all listen to this and tell me if that's what you heard. You already heard the man, the uh, witness say, no, I didn't hear that. Publish Exhibit 1007, and I'm going to ask you, sir, to listen to Mr. Floyd's voice. Did you hear that? Yes, I did. Did it appear that Mr. Floyd said, I ate too many drugs? Yes, it did. Having heard it in context, you're able to tell... Uh, what Mr. Floyd is saying there? Yes, I believe Mr. Floyd was saying, I ain't do no drugs. So it's a little different than what you were asked about when you only saw a portion of the video, correct? Yes, sir. Well, Robert, that that is a remarkable uh, clash between the two lawyers, between uh, defense lawyer Eric Nelson, prosecutor Matthew Frank there. And I wonder about the risk Eric Nelson just took with the jury where it is possible that, that, that some jurors might think now he's trying to put words in this man's mouth because the, the, the witness upon hearing again said, and who knows really what he's saying, it's certainly difficult to make out, that he said, I ain't doing no drugs. Terry, again, let's imagine being in the courtroom with the witness in front of us. You know, we are the lawyer going to cross-examine that witness. And we know that that witness has never heard the tape before. And we do this move where we play the video and the witness hears a snippet and then we ask the question, does it sound like, and we give him the answer. There's a cognitive reality that happens at times like this. The human ear actually fills in blanks at times like this. This is a sudden phenomenon. 
is we're in the courtroom, we hear the witness say, yeah, that sounds like the description offered. The risk that Nelson takes there is extraordinary because it, it does go right to the heart of what you're asking us to consider, which is, is Nelson being credible? Is he trying to suggest, rather than directly confront, what actually took place here? And that is a very dangerous move to make. Now, if the jurors are persuaded by it, you're going to be happy. But if the prosecution is redirected, which we saw, that is the question that followed uh, Nelson's cross-examination, if that redirect fixes the problem, there could be some sour taste in the juror's mouth about the way Nelson's perceived. And, and it was a, a risky thing to do, it seems to me, given how, how difficult it is to make out what that man in such distress is saying. And we talked about what we heard today. I hope, I hope y'all play the part where, the, where he was cross-examined. That's what I want to hear. If, if not, I'm through with y'all. A great deal of testimony about uh, the drugs that were found in George Floyd's car. Hi, it's such a it's such a hard issue, obviously, uh, for the prosecution. Okay, we're gonna stop that right there. I may come back to that, ladies and gentlemen. But I'm, I, it's important that y'all hear the uh, cross examination from the prosecution uh, about uh, uh, that statement that was just made by that witness, who obviously was cohorsed, right? When you, and what I mean by that is when you're um, told, did you hear this? And then they play it for you. And it's kind of uh, unaudible. You would go along with what they say. Yeah, that does sound like what he said. Yeah, it sounds like he said, I, I, I didn't, uh, I, I ate too many drugs. Now, if that thought is put into your head before you hear the uh, audio, then, uh, then you know, you coerced him into thinking that or, 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 or feeling that that's what he said. Now, let's go to that, and then I want you, and then uh, let me find this cross-examination so I can paint a very different picture of what the uh, defense is trying to get the jurors and the uh, lamestream media is trying to get y'all to uh, believe because I'm not hearing no... Um, cross-examination on this particular um uh, uh interview to the contrary okay ladies and gentlemen i believe this is the uh, cross-examination here i'm going to play this i hope this isn't the uh, uh, uh wrong uh, part of the uh, snippet i believe this is the correct one where even though the uh um the witness testified that that's what he thought he was he heard, and I believe, like I say, because he was coerced into believing that. Let's see exactly what the uh, cross-examination uh, brought out about that uh, witness and his uh, prior uh, testimony. Senior Special Agent Jamie Ryerson of the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension initially agreed with the defense that that's what Floyd appeared to say. But then he changed his answer when the prosecutor, Matthew Frank, played a longer clip of the video. Let's play that. Having heard it in context, you're able to tell uh, what Mr. Floyd is saying there? Yes, I believe Mr. Floyd was saying, I ain't do no drugs. I ain't so it's a little different no than drugs. what you were asked about when you only saw a portion of the video, correct? Yes, sir. 
So what impact could that revision of judgment have on the jury uh, and how the jury perceives this witness um, and what they are seeing and hearing, Paul? And also, should the prosecution have objected? I, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. So, But when it, it sounded to me as if what the defense attorney was trying to get the witness to do was to agree with his interpretation of what he believed uh, George Floyd was saying, not asking him, hey, what did he say? He said, hey, did he say this? Don't you agree that that's what it sounds like? Wouldn't that raise an objection if you were on the other side of that? It would with me because like I told y'all before earlier, it sounded like he was being coerced. He was being led to believe that something happened. Okay, he didn't He didn't let the, let the uh, witness hear the, uh, that audio portion and then come to his own consistence and his own uh, understanding about what he thinks he heard. But I'm telling you, I've heard it more than once, and it is totally um, inaudible for you to be able to give a, a specific definition about what you might have heard. So if, if, I, if I was the judge and I was presiding over this case, I would say, listen, we're going to... I want all the jurors to disregard what you've heard through the examination and cross-examination. We are not going to use that part to determine any uh, aspects of this case. Because I know the judge, just like me, he was not able to uh, get a full understanding about exactly what uh, uh, George Floyd was mumbling. But let's hear exactly what he had to say about that anyway. Not really. Uh, after all, let, let's remember, this is a terrific, terrific, it's a tragic trial, but it is a marvelously presented trial. The defense is doing extremely well. The prosecution is doing overwhelmingly well. But this is fascinating. A prosecution witness, an expert, is, is clearly saying during the defense cross-examination, which is handled beautifully and appropriately and without objection, the prosecution witness is hearing and saying George Floyd articulating as he's lying on the ground at the, toward the end of this episode, I ate too many drugs. Now, it is true that within seconds, the prosecution realizing just how, I don't want to say devastating, but critical this can be, replays the tape. And what does the prosecution witness do? He backtracks. Whether I believe what I heard, or you believe, lad, what was heard, or there's a conflict, what matters is what the 12 members of the jury heard. And I think it is going to play a role in their determination of the case, when we, particularly when we remember the defense. And let's not forget all of the other evidence. Look, I'm not in either side of this. This is a fascinating trial. It's a tragic event. Okay, I don't know why you keep calling this fascinating and terrific, and I don't know where you're getting these words from, but there's nothing fascinating. There's nothing terrific about it. There's, there's nothing uh, other than this is a tragic uh, event that's taking place from the... Uh, from the, uh, uh, the the modern day lynching of a, uh, uh, a a black man. So what what you're finding so terrific and what you're finding so enlightening about it, I don't know. In fact, you know what? 
before I start going off on the tangent, I'm going to just end this episode. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard uh, uh, day eight and day nine of the uh, 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 Derek Chauvin's uh, murder trial. And to me, he's getting closer and closer to that uh, preheated oven. And I'm sure at the end, well, I hope at the end of this um, trial that he will be put in the uh, oven, you know, on high. So with all that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank y'all for tuning in to another episode of Chilling with Teddy G. As I tell y'all always at the end of every show, please continue to do your social distancing. We're not out of the woods yet with this virus. So continue to wear your outer gear. Continue to wash your hands for 20 seconds or more. Continue to machine wash them clothes as soon as you pull them off. Continue to eat the proper meals to keep your immune system healthy and strong because we know a healthy and strong immune system is your number one defense against this virus. Your healthy and strong immune system will pre prevent you from catching this virus. So even in the unlikely event that you do test positive, you'll be able to get rid of it with little to no medication. With all that being said, as you guys know, Teddy G loves you. And loving you guys is my food. And Teddy G is hungry each and every single day of his life. And until I have the uh, great opportunity of addressing you guys again, I bid each and every one of you peace, love, and soul.